Hey everybody, this is the Week in Film Tech for October 25th, 2019. This week, I'm talking about the new Aperture MC Lite. It's shipping now. I'm talking about Beta Resolve 16.1 leaving Beta. That's a quick one. And I'm talking about the new Kipper Tie Long Take, which is a weird one, and I like it, and I'm talking about it because it's weird. In Gear Cage, I'm talking about the humble Samsung T5, because I got a great question about this, but it's more of a Gear Cage question than anything else. And that is all followed by Hey Professor about working with multiple cameras. That is this week on the Week in Film Tech. So the first thing I am talking about, and I'm not actually going to hold it in my hand. I'm holding an old ALM9 in my hand. So it's a little aperture light that just came out, the new MC. This is not an MC, this is an AL. I just happen to have one sitting on my desk. Uh, this one has been sitting on my desk for a while. I use it in my uh, camera review charts. If you've seen my camera reviews with mannequin faces, it's usually sitting on next to the lady mannequin face. So, what's interesting about the Aperture MC and why do you care about a tiny little light? We're filmmakers. Do we care about these tiny little pocket lights you can mount on a camera? There's a billion of them. Why do we care about the Aperture MC? So, here's what's interesting about the Aperture MC. There's like three things I think are worth noting about it. First... It is Aperture's first RGB light. Aperture is mostly known for their light storm lights. That's what they're really famous for. They make like the 120D and the 300D, and they just came out with a 600D. And the D is for daylight. There's no color control built in. And they are just about punch. And look, 85% of the time, you just want the brightest thing you can get because the brighter the light is, the further you can back it away. If you're using it without a softbox, it can make a nice backlight. With a softbox, you might use it as a key light. And the light storm lights are sort of in that interesting place of like being affordable where people can buy them and keep them around all the time. And they're always sort of with you. But they have a lot of nice, interesting features, especially the Mark II revisions of both lights. The uh, sort of controller boxes got much more integrated. You can pop V-mount batteries on there. They're DMX controllable. There's all that nice stuff, but they're only daylight balanced. I think it's a smart place to move. And frankly, I need more. I have an RGB backlight on me, my Hive Haas, Wasp. But my front light's a Aperture 120D because I don't need to change the color of it. I just want nice punch wrapping me on my face. And then I, you know, use my RGB unit, which was more expensive because it's RGB, as my backlight. And a lot of times the RGB units also don't give you as much brightness, which is one thing you're really looking for. A lot of times with LED lights. Aperture's been promising to get into RGB for a couple of years now. They showed off an RGB unit a couple of years ago at NAB, and they keep promising to do it. Now, here is their first ever actual RGB unit. And it's the tiny little MC, but I think that's cool. First off, so it's got RGB diodes. It also has full-on daylight and tungsten diodes. So it's really an RGBW light, which means if you work with it in bicolor mode, 3200 degrees, 6500 degrees, it's over 96 CRI, and it's going to give you a nice bright punchy light there. So they're not trying to create white light out of those RGB diodes. Those RGB diodes are just for your cool, crazy party color light. So it's interesting that they're getting into RGB. But what makes it even more interesting for me is the Cetus or Cytus. I don't know. I, I, I think it's Cetus, the, the mesh network that's built into it. So as you guys, longtime listeners know, I'm really fascinated with lighting with apps. I'm working on a presentation that's coming up at Adorama next week, October 30th. You guys should all go if you're in the New York area about lighting with apps. I think it's sort of an interesting place where we are as filmmakers that we should get a little more comfortable with apps and networking. And this is a Bluetooth mesh network, which means each one of these little MC lights, which again, they're like, yay, big. They're smaller than this little AL. Each one of them is a Bluetooth node that can talk to others. So the big problem you have with Bluetooth lights is usually I walk away, you know, for instance, the Hive Wasp behind me, the backlight, Bluetooth light, I use Bluetooth to set the color on it or to 
turn it into rainbow party mode. I walk away, it disconnects because Bluetooth doesn't give you a long distance for its signal. Bluetooth is not going to connect over long runs. With a mesh network, as long as every light is within a certain distance from every other light, all the lights are talking to each other. And they claim the Cetus mesh can cover 400 meters, uh, provided no two lights are more than 80 meters from each other. Now, they say this is under ideal conditions. I think ideal conditions probably means an open field with low interference, like you're not running a dozen teradecs and you're not running, you know, a whole bunch of really powerful um, electrosonics wireless audio. I imagine you're not getting real-world results that are 80 meters between units, but, you know, 10, 15 meters, 50 meters between units, that's still a robust gap between units if it's working. I haven't done a lot of, te- I haven't done any testing on this yet, but I'm really excited about mesh networks where all of the lights can talk with each other and you have the ability to sort of control them all individually or as a group. That's one thing that makes the MC really interesting and cool for me. So now you've got this tiny little light magnetically mountable or quarter 20 mountable where like, you know, let's say you, you're lighting a tabletop scene and you've got a chandelier up above it. What we previously used to do, if I wanted like a downlight from that chandelier, so I would have to like run some cable up there and run it down and then rig up some like dados if I could hide them in the lights piece or, you know, like mini flows or something like that. And now I could just take like three of these guys, pop them up there control them with Cetus, make them like, you know, if it's supposed to be a candle lit scene, I could make them feel candle and they're directional and they're pointing straight down and they're not going all directions. And I could just pop them in there with like magnets or a little quarter 20 mounts or tape. That's kind of fascinating, especially because then I can control them. Because one of the annoying things with these little units, you know, I like this little AL light, but it's got these little buttons on the side. And that makes it, you know, I've got to like lean in there and put my head up and find the finger buttons and stuff. But it's the wireless control that means I can just put the units up there, walk back, stand by the monitor, look at the light that's coming down from the chandelier, change the colors, change the settings, make it look like what I want it to look like. And that's way more exciting for me personally and makes these way more useful. An additional thing that I think is cool about MCs, and I'm going to say I think it's the first time I've heard about this for a film tool, is they wirelessly charge over QI, or key, QI, the wireless charging protocol that most of you guys know from your phones. Why is that cool? Well, when it's one unit, you don't really care about like plugging one unit into USB, but I really think these guys are being thought of as a multi-unit set by Aperture. Uh, they sell a four-unit set with a charging case. You plug that charging case in and it has little four charging pads in it, or like a rental house targeted 12-unit case. If you've got 12 of them, because you're going to be hiding them all over the background of a set to put up specials, or you're going to be trying to use all four of them in some sort of like handheld array or taping into an actor or lighting a car scene, and you're going to like put them all over the car so you can program in some sort of moving light effects using the mesh network. You don't want to plug all of those into USB every time you want to reset it. Wireless Qi charging, where you're just dropping them on the mat and they charge, seems like a really nice addition. Aperture like has piled all of the features into one. Sort of trying to think of like what else I would want out of this little unit. I mean, the other thing I'm curious about, and look, I'm just curious about it because I haven't read the specs, is if there's a way to integrate the Cetus mesh into DMX so that I can be DMX controlling like both the aperture units and like a sky panel or something. Can they talk to each other? Can the Cetus talk out? Can I control my Cetus network with something like Luminaire? These are things I'm going to try and figure out. I don't know the answer. I should have known the answer before I started recording the podcast. But but yeah, full RGBW, wireless charging, Bluetooth mesh network control. We're in a really interesting space, and I'm very curious about these units, and I think on a lot of little indie jobs, especially car work, especially product work, but also, frankly, like, I'm shooting in a little apartment, 
and I want to augment what's coming out of the, you know, whatever the unit is above the chandelier, above the table. I want to, I want to pretend like they have MR16s above their countertops, even though they don't. These kind of things are going to give you those kind of little splashes and hits of light. And I think that's kind of cool. So I'm personally pretty excited about the Aperture MC. I'm excited to hit the streets and I can't wait to play with them on a future job or test. All right. Up next, Kipper Tie. If you don't know Kipper Tie, they're a UK company. Their address is actually, I don't know if I should say this, but it's in their email is Pinewood Studios or somewhere in Pinewood. Um, it's a big studio complex. I don't think I'm violating privacy. It's probably on their website that they're at Pinewood. And I knew them best because they made a whole bunch of various OLPF optical low-pass filters for the red if everybody remembers you can change the olpf on the red and different olpfs look good in different situations there's some that are nice in skin tone some better in low light that show the nick was famous for i can't remember what olpf or was he using none anyway it's a filter that mounts right on your sensor and they make those they have just come out with a new red mini mag called the long take, which is a two terabyte mini mag. I don't talk about mini mags a bunch on here. It's not the kind of news I tend to cover. Although I did, I think I covered Genitech's whole Genitech makes unapproved third party mini mags and went to war with red about red charging way too much money for their mini mags and mini mags should be way cheaper and all that stuff because of the parts that are within it. Cause it's just MSATA memory inside and so Ginny Tech posted that video where they took one all apart and they were like, look inside. It's just $300 worth of parts. Why are they charging $1,500? And that's just professional markup. Like, that's just how it goes. So the long take mini mag is kind of hilarious looking because it like starts real small so it can fit in the slot and then it gets bigger out the back. It's got like a shoulder. It's M2 SSD. So it's like a faster SSD. It's good for 1200 terabyte writes, which is 600 cycles because it's a two terabyte drive. Uh, although they, they, that's what it's officially rated for, and they've tested it to 3,000 terabyte writes. And so it's a 2 terabyte red mini mag, which means at 8K, at 5 to 1, the lowest compression, at 2398, you can shoot two hours of footage, which is crazy pants. And most people don't shoot 5 to 1. A lot of people shoot 8 to 1, 16 to 1. 16 to 1 gets pretty low. Um, so yeah, it's kind of crazy how big a magazine you can fit into the thing. So that's all cool, and it's great, and it's $1,700, and I think people should know about it if you have a pressing need to never change your mag you're doing a two-hour shot you're shooting a concert there's reasons you would want that kind of runtime right usually you're doing a two-hour concert job you're changing a mag between song changes and you're making sure different cameras change them at different times if you needed to shoot a concert in 8k for some reason but here you could just literally shoot an entire 90 minute or two hour performance in one card so there's that people doing live event work should be aware of this as a thing but beyond that they've also built a usb-c port into their long take mag which means you don't even need a card reader. You can just plug the mag into your computer to download, which I think is super cool. I think all mini mags and all camera mags should have USB-C ports sometime soon. I think that was a, a nice little feature introduced by Kipper Tai. So that's Kipper Tai long take. It kind of reminds me, I remember back in the 35 days, Panavision had 2,000 foot mags, which they always said, I think it was originally built for like sitcoms, back when sitcoms were on 35. This is a while ago. And um, that was a 20 minute mag. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, 20-minute Mac. Because 2,000 feet of 35 millimeter lasted for 20 minutes. I think I saw them. I don't think I ever shot a 2,000-foot mag. Because it gets real physically heavy. Like, that's a tripod magazine. You are not... Uh, that's like a studio pedestal magazine. It's a big magazine, 2,000 feet. So that is Kipper Tie. The last bit of news this week, I usually do two headlines, but I'm squeezing in a third. Blackmagic Resolve 16.1 is out of beta. So what, what's the difference between 16.1 and 16? 16 plain left beta in august 
You're not going to see schools or TV stations update to 6.1 anytime soon. Big facilities don't tend to update quickly, and they usually never update in the middle of a season. So if you're a TV show, you're, you're probably not going to switch right now. If there's a TV show out there editing re- and finishing Resolve, I'm sure there are. Uh, schools are probably not going to update mid-semester. We're a couple weeks from finals. People are going to be freaking out if there's some new bug that comes with 16.1. But 16.1 has a couple of features that I think are really looking at. One is sync bins. And so, you know, this is a very normal workflow nowadays. I'm doing a multi-camera job. I make sure they all have the same time code using, there's now the dish sync, which uses GPS time code, but usually we use like some sort of locket box system or something like that. Or, you know, we will all sync to the sound recordist's time code because, you know, MixPre 633 or a whole bunch of other uh, devices put out rock steady time code. So I get all my cameras having the same time code and the audio. And what used to happen is I'd bring those clips together and then I would manually sync them using time code. It took 10 seconds, and I would create sync clips. 16.1 introduces sync bins, where anything I put in that bin will be automatically sunk by timecode. So if you're doing a lot of big multi-camera shows, if you're on a reality show with eight cameras, and you're using timecode sync to keep everything together, this could be a real time saver, because then you're like, okay, everything from this hour, everything I want sunk together, I just throw in the bin, and it automatically puts it all together sunk for me. It's a nice feature. It is a time-saving feature for people who are using a lot of multi-camera time code sync work. The other thing that comes with 16.1 that I think is cool is AI neural engine-driven reframing. So one thing that happens a lot is people shoot a higher resolution than they finish. You shoot 8K to finish 4K. You shoot 4K to finish 2K. I mean, I'm going to be honest, a lot of TV shows still deliver 1080. Uh, I think they're mastering to 4K as a backup, but you see a lot of content delivered 1080 still. And if you shoot 8K and you deliver 1080, you can often reframe a little bit. So you'll have a wide shot and then you need a close-up. So you'll get that close-up out of the wide is what they say. And Resolve is trying to make this faster. They've added a new close-up tool and the close-up tool uses AI to identify faces. So instead of going in and being like zoom and setting your zoom settings and your pan and tilt settings and cropping around, you can just sort of click and get a close-up on a face using a neural engine that's going to try and frame that close-up as elegantly as possible for you. And I think that is both cool and terrifying. I mean, it's not that terrifying because Facebook's gotten us really used to the idea of facial recognition knowing faces. So I think we're comfortable with that. And look, it's absolutely going to like speed things up. I'm shooting 8K, I'm finishing 1080, I'm trying to get close-ups out of it. It will be a nice feature that will be used a lot in certain workflows. But it's definitely another robot coming for another job. Um, although in the end, I'm not afraid of robots taking jobs, because I think we'll just find other jobs. People were afraid of robots taking jobs when we introduced tractors to farms. And uh, we've discovered way more jobs to do, even though tractors do a lot of the old farm work. So I'm not worried. But this is definitely... You know what? I'm not even scared of this. This is taking a drudgery job of like reframing a shot and uh, using a neural engine to speed it up. So actually, I'm not even afraid of this. Thank you for the close-up tool, neural engine, machine learning algorithm, uh, and face identification tool set. Uh, much appreciated. All right. That is the headlines this week. Up next, Gear Cage. So I had a question from Charlene Wang, who I've known for a few years. We've worked together on a few things. And she hit me up and she was like, yo, your gear cage is always stuff I can't afford. Can you do a gear cage just for me? I want to buy a new working hard drive. So first off, I want to make a distinction. There are backup hard drives and working hard drives. Because, you know, the bare minimum of copies of your media you need is two copies. 
every once in a while a student will come to me with like one hard drive and the, and it will have died and they'll be like, but it was the only copy of my media. And I will just like laugh in their face, like an anime character because I'm like, well, that's on you for only having one copy of your media. I don't actually laugh. It's usually a sad moment, but you should never have one copy of your media. You always want multiple copies. And you just want to use, like, cheap hard drives. I use bare SATA drives, make multiple copies, stick them in a closet. I mean, I'm a little more finicky than that. I have a fireproof safe in my office and a fireproof safe in my storage unit. And I put one copy in the office safe and one copy in the storage unit safe just so that, like, if my office burns down, I've got the copies in my storage unit. But that's for camera originals that I'm only going to touch again when I go back to color grade. For things like your transcoded dailies files, your proxy media, your working files, stuff like that, you need a drive that you can take around with you. We call that a working drive. It's the drive that, like, you know, it's living in your bag. It's going with you on the subway. You know, you get home at night and the client is like, oh, hey, actually, can we swap out that one shot? You have the things you need to do it with on that working drive. So Charlene was like, what working drive should I get? And this is the working drive everybody has now. It's a Samsung T5. I did a project last summer and I bought four of them. They worked great. Every working drive will die. I'm not blaming the specific Samsung T5 here. I think it's a great drive. I, you know, for a year and a half, four of them have been in circulation around my office and have been used to edit projects and deliver things and all sorts of stuff. But every working drive is going to die. You always want to treat your working drive as something where everything on it is backed up. Like the proxy media, you've got your camera original dailies. You can read transcode your project files. You're backing them up to some sort of Google drive or Dropbox. Um, because even the most robust working drive, you can drop it on the subway and it can get hit by a train. It can fall apart. You can break the connector. You can do all those things. So I've never been obsessed with my working drive being the most durable thing on the planet. My working drive has to be good enough to survive a variety of projects. And honestly, I just see the Samsung T5 everywhere. It's an SSD. It's affordable. It's robust. At least when I got it, it came with USB-A and USB-C cables in the box. So it came with both, depending on what you're doing. It is plenty speedy enough for most workflows. Am I going to want to finish a 16K you know, red raw project off of it. Probably not. I'll probably want to use a server or something that's giving me something a little bit more robust playback. But like, have I worked on tons of projects where we got through editorial and we got through color grading and it worked great off the, you know, the T5 SSD. I totally have. And they're very affordable. Uh, Shirley also asked me how big to get. That's really a project to project decision. That is something that really depends upon how much you think you're going to be shooting. I got, uh, I have a lot of 500 gigabyte ones and they treat me all right. If I was trying to do everything off of one, I'd probably get a one terabyte one. The thing is, though, is the price benefit doesn't really weigh out. It's not like the 500 gigabyte ones are really affordable. You get up to the two terabyte ones and you do sort of pay a price penalty for that. So if you think you can get away with 500 gigabytes, that is my gear cage recommendation for the week. The Samsung T5. You just see them everywhere. Although this one. The label has been peeled off. Label your Samsung T5. I've definitely like walked into classrooms where there were like four of these or I've, you know, wandered by a post house and seen a couple. So make sure you get out your label maker or some tape and make sure you label your T5 so you don't accidentally take someone else's T5. Our Hey Professor for the week is... For a multicam shoot, is it better to buy multiple cheap monitors or one nice monitor with multiple inputs? This is a really good question, and one I haven't thought about very much. And I'm going to lay it out, and I'm going to say one good monitor. Ideally, everybody has the same monitor on set. That's the dream. And actually, in a couple weeks, I'm going to talk about the Cine 7, because I've been testing it from small HT. And the Cine 7 is rapidly becoming the thing where people are like, what monitor to get? And I'm like, just get that. It's so great. It controls your Alexa and your RED. But aside from that, those 
do add up. That is still like a $1,500 monitor. And you can, frankly, do great operating on a $200 monitor. And most of the camera operators should really be just worried about framing and focus. Yes, if a friend of yours who's a cinematographer is operating C-camera and... Because they're also DP, they have really good lighting instincts, and they're, they're going to notice things where they're like, oh, hey, it looks like this light is not matched or whatever. It might be nice for them to have a nicer monitor. But in reality, you can do most of the framing and focus you need on a more affordable monitor. There's a whole bunch of companies that make $150, $200 monitors, and those are going to have all the info you want. You, you probably want to upgrade to a monitor for all of the individual cameras that it gives you the ability to zoom in so that they can really check their focus. Uh, most monitors do this. The affordable monitors sometimes don't. So it's a feature you want to check. But, you know, it could get really expensive making sure everybody has a super nice monitor. And I think one monitor that gives you a really good color-accurate image that you can port multiple inputs to and then switch between. And here's the thing. It might not be a monitor that has multiple inputs. My favorite monitor right now, the DM250, I don't even think you can buy them at the moment, but I love that monitor, two inputs. If I was doing a six-camera show, I wouldn't do a six-camera show, the DM250, without bringing along something like some sort of switcher. And there's lots of switchers. There's SDI switchers for $200 and $400, and you could put all six of your cameras into there, and you could just switch with that into the DM250. So don't worry too much about the monitor's inputs, because um, you can always add a switcher to the mix. Really make sure you have at least one monitor around where you're like, yes, I can trust this image. I know this image is accurate and representing exactly what I'm seeing, what I'm recording, what I'm getting, what I'm going to be able to deliver to client. And that is way more important to me than necessarily every individual operator having those same tools. I think the operators need the tools they need for framing and focus and a little bit for exposure. Sometimes... Like, usually multi-camera shows, everybody's at the same aperture. But sometimes you do give freedom to people at crazy angles to switch aperture. If somebody's like, you know, most of the people who are in the same arena are at the same aperture. But if someone's, like, way off in the wings on a live show or something, and so they're shooting mostly into the audience, they might need to open up a little more. So having some good exposure tools on that monitor would be nice as well. Things like false color if the cameras don't have it. But again, you can do that pretty affordably on those and stick with a single nice monitor. Now, I would be remiss if I did not mention that there are now monitors with multiple inputs that will also allow you to multi-record ISOs. Uh, Atomos has their whole neon line of monitors. And here's the other thing. I love a big monitor. If you have the way to get it to set, if you're taking a truck there, or if your car fits it, I, I've been trying to work exclusively with a 50-inch monitor or bigger lately, and it's so great on set. Uh, to have a big monitor. First off, it attracts a crowd, which I like am two thumbs up to a crowd. Cause then if I want to be by camera, I don't have like everybody crowding camera. Everybody's crowding the giant 50 inch monitor a ways away, but also it's great to see it real big on set and evaluate playback full size. And you know, most of the time, everything we make is going to be watched on someone's home TV. The number one home TV size now is 65 inches. So if you can get a 65 inch out there with you, totally do it. It's awesome. But so Atomos has those Ninja monitor, neon monitors, and they also have a seven inch Shogun seven that will take up to four inputs and will record all four inputs and your edit stream inside the monitor on the internal hard drive in the monitor. This isn't going to be the right workflow for every multicam shoot, but if you're doing like a four camera shoot, uh, Atomos's monitors are getting pretty color accurate. The Shogun seven is super bright and color accurate and um, the ability to record all of those ISOs. So you don't even have to worry if the individual, all the operators have to worry about is framing and focus. They're not even rolling and cutting. Everything is getting recorded in the neon. And if you're live editing, 
that can get recorded as an XML. So all you know, you're on set, you're watching everything on your Shogun Seven, and you see all four of your angles, and you're like clicking between them, and one of them's highlighting, and then that's creating an XML that you bring into Final Cut or Resolve, and all of a sudden it up it pops a timeline. But all four ISOs have been recorded, so you can go in and you can be like, oh, I did that wrong. I'm going to adjust that cut, or I wish that cut had been earlier. And you can do all those trims because you didn't record the record. You recorded all of the camera ISOs. It's a very cool feature. It's really exciting to be living in the future like that in monitors. So if you're doing a lot of multicam work, I would look at the Neon and Shogun 7 lines because I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, But separate than that, yeah, I would really focus on one super good monitor that really... You know, if I have the budget of $4,000 monitors, I would rather get one $4,000 monitor than $4,000 monitors. Because, you know, your operators just need to frame and focus. And then everything else should be up to whoever is in charge. So that's Hey Professor for this week. All right, first off, I have two books out. Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers. Check that out. You can also check out Color Grading 101. Came out this week from Focal Press. You want to see me in person, I will be at Adorama October 30th talking about lighting with apps. The good, the bad, and the ugly there. You should subscribe to this podcast at WeCanFilmTech.com, where I send out an email about what we talked about every week with links. Tell your friends about this podcast. If you know anybody who's like, I'm too busy to keep up with film news, but I make stuff and I want to know the new tools. Uh, That's what this podcast is for. Spread the word. We're growing our audience. And yeah, hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at OnRecky on Instagram, O-N-R-E-K-K-E. Just Charles Hain on Twitter. And yeah. Have fun making movies. I'll talk to everybody next week and feel free to ask me more. Hey, professors. Hey, professors.